Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. He was a hard-working small business owner, an army veteran, an attentive lover and a doting father. But he was also something more, something sinister. A master of deception, he was a rapist, arsonist and bank robber, and a new breed of serial killer, one who studied other killers to perfect his craft. He methodically buried kill kits containing his tools of murder years before returning to reclaim them. Viewing the entire country as his hunting grounds, he often flew across the country to distant locations where he would rent a car and drive hundreds or even thousands of miles before randomly selecting his victims. Such were the methods and madness of serial killer Israel Keys. Such were the demands of the devil in the darkness. The book that we're featuring this evening is Devil in the Darkness, the true story of serial killer Israel Keys, with my special guest, journalist and author, J.T. Hunter. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for agreeing to this interview, J.T. Hunter. Thanks for having me back, Dan. Thank you very much, J.T. Uh, another amazing and wild story you've gotten your hands on, and good for our audience and myself, so thanks very much. Let's start with, uh, we're going to jump right into this, because uh, there's a lot to cover. It's it's a very, very strange and odd and unique tale. Let's first talk about Bill and his wife, um, Courier. And so let's talk about uh let's talk about this couple and what they were like because she was forty nine years old and Bill fifty five and we're talking about they live in Vermont. So tell us a little bit where they're living in Vermont and what this couple is like. Uh, tell us a little bit about this these people. Okay, yeah, Bill and Bill and Lorraine Courier, as you said, uh, they were living in Essex, Vermont, which is a you know smaller town, not far from Burlington. And they uh, they were a married couple living together, and Bill worked. Uh, at the uh, University of Vermont there in Burlington. He was an animal care worker, uh, technician. And Lorraine worked in the medical field, also in the Burlington area there. Now, these people, you open the story basically, or soon after in the book, you talk about uh, Diana Smith calling police, it's her brother and, and sister-in-law didn't show up for work, um, and then the police were alerted. So take us to where the police are at this investigation. Uh, they've been called, and they go to the home. Tell us what they find, what their conclusions are. Tell us about that. So when the when the police were, were called, about this, they had this missing person report, and they showed up at the courier's house, 
And everything looked fine when they first arrived there. They, but they, you know, they started looking around the perimeter of the house there, and um, they peered into the garage, one of the windows into the garage, and they noticed that there was broken glass on the floor in the garage inside from the door connecting the garage to the house. Um, it turned out it went from the garage into the kitchen of the home, and the glass had been shattered out uh, from that door. And they went from there, they, they went inside, and they saw that it looked like somebody had broke the window with a crowbar from the garage and then were able to unlock and open the door that way and gain access to the house. And when they went inside the house, it looked looked like everything was pretty much where it should be. It wasn't as if someone had ransacked the home or anything like that. But both Bill and Lorraine, they were both missing. And their car was missing as well. Now, the the police canvassed the neighbors, and some of the neighbors said they had heard a gunshot around 9 p.m., and someone had spotted someone driving the Courier Saturn. Uh, they said a lone man was driving, and there was a former cop was the witness, and a composite sketch was made as a result. But tell us, again, this is a series of very frustrating things, but uh, Detective Murdy was curious about this tipster, so tell us what happened with this tipster and what seemed to be a pretty promising lead early on. Uh, you're talking about the tipster of seeing the car being driven? Yeah, and it was a former police officer, yeah. Yeah, they, they had that information come in, and it, you know, it turned out that uh, they weren't sure how accurate that ended up being, but they, what they did end up doing is they ended up finding the car abandoned um, a few days after the couriers were abducted, a few days after they were reported missing, the car was found abandoned by uh, by a dumpster in a parking lot, parking lot of an apartment complex in Essex. There, so they they did ultimately recover the car, but were not able to, at that point, ascertain the whereabouts still of Bill and Lorraine. So it was a very frustrating case, as, as I think you mentioned, especially for the the chief detective involved in the case, George Murdy, up there in the Essex Police Department. Uh, just really no solid leads whatsoever in the case. It was a very perplexing case for him. And they ran through the uh, normal things. They checked the computers and checked out where they these these people might have run into a, a potential perpetrator. And, and Murdy did call someone and had a consultation with the behavioral analysis unit in Quantico, and uh, so what did the case, what did it look like in terms of amateurism and what did it look like in terms of what did they have as a result of the crime scene itself? What real evidence, if any, did they have after this? Well, there wasn't really a lot of evidence for them to, to go on, and that's part of why it was so frustrating. I mean, they had the, they had the evidence of the obvious break-in, and there were some things missing from the home, for instance, Lorraine was known to have a handgun that was missing from the home. Um, and, but a lot of things weren't, weren't missing. And there wasn't a lot of, of evidence to, to try to connect to anyone. So that's what made the case so frustrating for the officers working it. And as you mentioned, they did consult with the FBI, the Behavioral uh, Analysis Unit there. 
And uh, they, they did get a report back from the FBI on that, and the FBI made a bunch of suggestions and, you know, offered their theory as to what sort of person may have done this. And one of the things the FBI advised the Essex Police Department to do was to look into some of the activities that um, Bill and Lorraine were involved in. For instance, Bill was online quite a bit, so they wondered, well, maybe did he meet somebody online somehow that led to this? And, um, you know, Lorraine had become very vocal uh, with respect to um, conservative values and things, and so they wondered that somehow speaking out about this did somehow attract somebody's attention. So, but, but there wasn't any real solid leads, and the FBI had even offered the opinion that it was uh, somebody that most likely had known them because it would, uh, it would really be out of the ordinary, be quite extraordinary for it to be some sort of random abduction. Now, you jumped to uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and you describe, and then you show a photo in the book as well. It's very interesting when you think of a coffee place, but this is an actual coffee stand that's sitting out in the, in the streets, basically, according, at least according to the photo. So tell us a little bit about these coffee stands in Anchorage, Alaska, this common ground, and a young girl that's 18 years old named Samantha Koning. Yeah, so the couriers disappeared in June of 2011. And then in February of the next year, of 2012, Samantha Koenig, who was 18 years old and who worked at one of these coffee shops, as you mentioned, these, these coffee shops are pretty common in the Anchorage area. They're scattered around the city, different locations. And um, she worked at one called Common Grounds, and it was stationed near a major intersection uh, in, a, in a parking lot. Um, at a major inter- road intersection there in the city. And she worked there. She had been working there for a few months, I believe. And on a night in February, she was working there by herself, which was the common practice there at night. And Israel Keys had scoped out the particular coffee shop a few days before and decided that he was going to do something to it. At first he thought he would just rob it, uh, whoever was working there. But when he ended up actually going to commit the robbery, he decided to take it further, and he ended up abducting Samantha Koenig from the coffee shop there uh, at gunpoint. You described the whole thing because we have you have the benefit of having that incredible access to the information and won't give away how that happens, but at least you describe, and, and again, this is the, the most movie-esque portion of the book, I would think, and so profound is that he's at the stand, but he realizes that there's someone across the street at a car dealership, and Samantha's 18 years old, and obviously this person is older and more experienced. So what does this person do to abduct someone? What does he have to, what's the process he has to do to, to be able to get her to comply, not have this person be suspicious? You take us that, into that in the book. Tell us what really happens and how 
to illustrate early on this killer, tell us what he does. Well, the the coffee shop, it's it's the type where they have the order window where you can drive up and order and then you know drive off, or you can walk up to it, to the window and order. And so he, he walked up there close to closing time and had a had his own cup or mug for coffee, ordered a coffee, and then as she was fixing it, he pulled out the gun, told her to turn the lights off in, in the store, which she did. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, one of the kind of tragic things was is it turned out that right next to the light switches was the the alarm yeah. for, uh, you know, an emergency. And, you know, you, you can imagine, though, this 18-year-old girl, she's frightened out of her wits, someone holding a gun on her, so yeah. she didn't think to trigger the alarm there. But she turned the lights off, and he noticed, as you said, this person in the car across the way, so he just kind of calmly stood there and talked to her and kind of acted like, you know, he was her boyfriend or some sort of acquaintance or friend or something, and they were just kind of chatting uh, until the, the person in the car finally decided that must be what's going on, in fact, and then drove off and left. And then once the person in the car left, he's jumped in through the window and tied up Samantha Koenig using these plastic cable ties tied her hands and bound her and then ended up walking her back to his truck which he had parked not too far away in a, in a parking lot and uh, took her away in his truck and you know and along the way he they encountered some people out going to stores and parking lots you know not too far away from him but he, he stayed very calm throughout the whole thing had the gun there and and they got her in the truck even after she tried to to get away one time. And then they drove around for a while, and he ended up taking her back to his his actual residence, which was the first time I, that uh, he had done this sort of thing. He kind of had a rule that he wouldn't take any victims anywhere near where he lived in the area he lived. But uh, he got a little brazen and more bold as things went on, and so he took her back to his house and put her in a shed that was adjacent to the house there and ended up sexually assaulting her and, and ultimately killed her. Now, you, we, you talk about, and heartbreaking part of it, is uh, her father, James Koning, didn't like her working alone in this and didn't even like her working at this place at all. Had some kind of instinct that something might be... He was very protective of her. He raised her himself um as, as a single dad and they were very close as you talk about in the book and so she also part of this compliance is is that he explains or he convinces her that this is a ransom so tell us a little bit about what she says about the phone call and and about her dad and w- what she tries to do to try to worm her way out of this situation and what he tells her to even be more compliant. And compliance is what's really turning him on about the situation, isn't it? Yeah, as you said, he, in order to keep her calm and to have her be compliant with his demands, he, he did spin the whole thing as being an abduction purely for a ransom and that that's what he was after. He just wanted... Money from her family, but all along he, you know, he knew it was a bunch of baloney. 
really wasn't the the reason for ta- for taking her. Um, but uh, he 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 did uh, he did tell her that was the reason and um, set it, set this whole thing up so that she would believe that's what what he was going to do so that she would you know she wouldn't freak out you know obviously if she knew he was planning on raping her and killing her then she probably would have been a little more aggressive in her actions to try to get away um, at one point even when they were in the truck together stopped at a stoplight a patrol car from the Anchorage Police Department pulled up right next to them. Yeah. So, you know, her potential rescuers were literally a couple feet away there. But, uh, you know, she she didn't do anything to draw, draw attention to what was going on because, you know, one, she was afraid, obviously, and then two, she thought if she did what this guy said that, you know, she would eventually be let go. He would let her go once, you know, the ransom came. Now she was 18 years old. She had a, a boyfriend uh, named Dwayne, and uh, Dwayne, uh, she had given up her truck to Dwayne so that because he, he didn't have a vehicle, and she said, "Well, her cousin Dan would pick her up." But unbeknownst to her, the boyfriend Dwayne was going to pick her up and wanted to pick her up. And so, tell us a little bit about Dwayne and him going to the stand and leaving work. Yeah, as you said, his, he didn't have a, a working vehicle at the time, so she let him take his take her truck to his work, and he decided he was going to come by and pick her up after work because he didn't trust the that, the person that was supposed to pick her up would be doing it. So, so yeah, he came by the coffee stand um, after she had been abducted, and of course found it empty, found it dark, all the lights were off. But nothing really stood out that there was anything to be particularly alarmed about because it looked like, as far as he could tell, it looked like she just closed the coffee stand down like she normally did. Um, so, But he did, he did stop by there, and he stood there peering in the window, trying to, trying to find her and texted her and called her. And, of course, meanwhile, these texts and phone calls were <clears throat> going through to her phone that uh, Israel Keys now had. Now, you go into great detail because, again, we have access, Israel Keys, pardon me, this, well, I've given it away, but obviously we mentioned his name anyway. Israel Keys, uh, the very unique killer. And, of course, like many, they want to talk later at some point. And that's part of the fasc- fascinating part of your book is, again, access to that kind of profound and shocking information. You talk about how she tries to deal with him uh, when she realizes, and she asks the question, and so I, I get you to, to say what she asks of him and what his reaction is, and then the contraption. This guy's a very handy person. He's, we'll talk about his skills later, but tell us what he has set up so that we understand the magnitude and the, I guess, the uniqueness of this killer. What he set up as far as, you're talking about the shed? Yes. So he had given a lot of forethought to what he was going to be doing, and, you know, he was one of these organized serial killers, plans these things out well in advance. So he had done this ahead of time, and he had prepared the shed for bringing 
whoever it was he ended up abducting back over there. Um, he had, you know, he had the floor lined so that there wouldn't be um, DNA evidence left there, and he had the whole thing set up for uh, a sexual assault that he intended and uh, and what he would be doing afterwards. And um, you know, when she got in there and realized that he was planning on raping her, of course she tried to talk him out of it and pleaded with him and you know offered some th- some things to him and his uh which you know I'll, I'll leave for the book but uh but he <coughs> you know, he he kind of laughed it off basically and and uh just went ahead with what he planned on doing now he strangles her and he stuffs her in his cabinet and he knows the the temperature is enough to be able to preserve her that's what he believes he stuffs her in puts a tarp and then he leaves. Where does he go and how long does he go for before we talk about the incredible and bizarre thing he does when he gets back? Yeah, so after he killed her, as you said, he stuffed her in a shed in in a in a in the shed there. He had the cabinet there he put her in and you know, it's Anchorage, Alaska in February, so it's it's cold. So he yeah. felt confident that her body would just kind of be preserved there by the cold, kind of a natural refrigeration, um, which which it did ultimately. Um, but yeah, he after he did that, he he caught a flight um, to Texas and uh, ended up going on a cruise uh, out of New Orleans, um, and then flew back to back home, back to Anchorage, about ten days later or so, and. Um, Got her, found her body there, frozen solid where he had left it, and um, he, he actually took it out and had the body start thawing out. Had some heaters out to help thaw it out, and did some did some things to it then that that only a very disturbed person would do. And then ultimately ended up dismembering the body to dispose of it, dispose of the body parts. Which he ended up doing. Um, he he in a uh, a frozen lake, um, not not too far outside of Anchorage. He, he well, the, the truly bizarre thing is what he does before, because of course we we skipped over what happens after Samantha Coining goes missing and her father. So tell us about what happens with that investigation, and then when. Israel Keys comes back from his cruise. What does he do in in response to the reward for Samantha, and even the idea that people don't know whether she's dead or not? What is going on at the same time he's on his cruise, and how does he respond when he comes back, and how does he respond with that body, and what does he do? Well, at first, nobody thought too much about Samantha's disappearance. You know, her boyfriend was worried, was concerned. Uh, her father thought maybe she was just kind of out with friends for the night, so he wasn't too concerned at first. Um, but when she didn't show up, you know, by the next morning, they really got concerned, and they ended up contacting the employer, the owner of the Common Grounds Coffee Shop, and the employer went back and reviewed the security camera video footage from the night she was abducted, and sure enough. They had it on tape that there she is being held up at gunpoint, and this dark figure 
coming in the window of the shop and ultimately taking her away. And you can see video footage from one of the cameras outside the stand. You can see Israel Keys leading her away through the snow and the darkness to his truck. And once he learned that that uh, there was had been a, a, a big ransom formed and growing after she was missing to you know as a reward for any information to for her return he got back to Alaska and decided he was going to go forward with this ransom idea after all so he before he got rid of her body he actually went to great lengths to apply various makeup to kind of style her hair to make it look like she was alive, to add color to her face to make it look like she was actually alive. And he he staged a photograph of her with a edition of the newspaper um, to make it appear that she was actually alive. And then he sent a left a ransom note along with the, the picture um, demanding money um, for her return. So she, he fooled everybody that she was still alive. She made, he made her father think that she was still alive. He made the Anchorage Police Department folks believe she was still alive, all for the purposes of of getting this this money from the reward fund that had been growing. So there was a huge support from the community to try to find her, a uh, big outpouring of support from everybody around there, and a lot of people contributed to this reward fund. So he, he did leave the ransom note, and the police recovered it. <clears throat> and uh, I guess sort of the ironic thing is that that's ultimately what led to his being captured eventually. Now, the thing is is that it's and an interesting is that he can only get $500. The stipulation is he, st- he had stolen her ATM card, so then he stipulates in the ransom that he wants that money put in her account so he can take it out. So, of course, the police react. What do the police do with every ATM machine in Anchorage? And tell us what they get as a result, not to give it away, but tell us what they're looking for and how far are they behind this perpetrator and what is he doing to disguise his appearance? So after... He leaves the ransom note, and the police get it, and they start actually putting money into this account, as you mentioned. He starts taking money out from Samantha Koenig's bank account using her ATM card. And what he does is he just starts going around different ATM machines in the Anchorage area and taking out little bits at a time, you know, the maximum amount he can, because, you know, the withdrawal limits that I guess all ATMs have. Um, so he starts doing that, but, you know, of course, by the time the police ascertain where he's doing this, he's long gone by the time they can get to that particular location. And he's also, you know, sometimes he disguises himself, wears a mask or whatnot, um, so that the, the camera won't pick up his, his real face. Um, but that is, that's something that he does in Anchorage, and then he continues that when he he leaves and um, catches a flight to uh, to Texas to <clears throat> to go to his sister's wedding there. He continues this these withdrawals of, of ATMs all over the area in, in Arizona, New Mexico, 
and ultimately in Texas as well, um, which, as I mentioned before, is what ends up leading to his, his capture. Because what happens is that one of the ATMs that he withdraws money from in Texas, the video cameras there, the security cameras at the ATM at the bank, capture an image of the car he's driving. It's a rental car, a white Ford Focus. And so they get that on video. So finally now the FBI and uh, the other law enforcement involved, now finally they have something that they can work with to try to find him. He goes and tries to trade in the rental car, you know, not 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 even knowing that he'd been captured on video, but you know, to help just help cover his tracks more. He he goes and tries to trade in the rental car at a rental car agency. I think it was Hertz um, in Texas there, and the only car that they have at the location he goes to is the same exact make and model and even color. Uh-huh. Same, same thing. All they have is a white Ford Focus. So he does trade the car in for a different one, but it's the same, same car basically. So the uh, law enforcement is looking for this white Ford Focus, and now they're still looking for a white Ford Focus. So they're still able to stay on his tracks. And sure enough, a few days later, several days later, they, a, um, a member of the um, Texas Highway Patrol spots a car matching the description in the parking lot of a Quality Inn hotel in a uh, in a town in Texas there in Lufkin, Texas, and they end up uh, following him when he leaves the hotel and are able to pull him over when he speeds a little bit. He goes like a few miles over the speed limit, so they're able to pull him over. And when they ask for his license, of course, he produces this Alaska license, which sends up a big red flag too and he's he's arrested ultimately arrested let's use this as an opportunity to talk about uh, our sponsor blue apron now being a big health and natural food guy i was very anxious to try the healthy and natural food and unique recipes from blue apron and i was not disappointed the food tasted incredible I first tried the summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplants, shishito peppers, and corn. Now, it was really easy to follow the recipe, and it was one of the most interesting, delicious, and satisfying meals I have ever eaten. You could see, smell, and taste the freshness of the ingredients, and what a combination of flavors. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers these and other seasonal recipes, along with all the pre-portioned ingredients to make your own delicious home-cooked meals. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Humanely raised beef, free-range chicken, naturally raised pork, and regenerative farming practices for all their produce. Whether it's Japanese Raymond noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the very best. New recipes are created weekly and are not repeated within the year, so you can choose your meals from a variety of recipes or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options to fit your needs. There is no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, 
easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals absolutely free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash truemurder. You will love how good it feels, how good it tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So go to blueapron.com slash truemurder. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, JT, we talked about finally the law catching up to Israel Keys, And part of this you chronicle in the book, too, is that this guy has this, and we'll talk about this double life a little bit more, but he had met this woman named Tammy, um, and they had a serious relationship, and there's a child involved here as well. Um, And he is arrested, and of course, as he talks about, there's going to be an awfully lot of people surprised by the rest of this person. So tell us about that initial uh, arrest my police and what they did. Just tell us about that initial arrest and what police are are just beginning to learn about Israel Keys. Well, after Keys was arrested, he was um, you know he was arraigned and um, ultimately a complaint was filed against him in federal court um, based on his use of the ATM card. So you have the Koenig's ATM card. So he had the federal case brought against him, and uh, he was ultimately sent back to Alaska. And he, through the course of being interviewed with the both the Alaska Police Department members and also FBI agents and also the federal prosecutors, he ultimately ended up admitting killing Samantha Koenig and um, revealed where he had hit her body, and uh, there was an interesting dynamic that was going on during the interviews. On the one hand, Keyes seemed excited when he talked about his crimes and things he had done. Um, he, he grew visibly excited, you know, got kind of came on the edge of his seat and really, uh, really seemed to enjoy talking about it. But then on the other hand, he was very concerned about what effect the information about his crimes would have on his his daughter. As you mentioned, he had a he had a daughter, and uh, that's one of the really interesting things about Keys to me was you know when you think about these these serial killers, and you know they have these psychopathic personalities they tend to not really have the sort of emotions that you or I might have or the empathy for other people but in Key's case he actually seemed to be genuinely concerned about the welfare of his daughter he really seemed to have true feelings for her and from all accounts, he was a very good father, a doting father to her. So that, that really struck me as, as a really one of the fascinating aspects of Key's personality in the case was this concern for the daughter. So, so there was this 
this dynamic going on during the course of all the interviews. He was always worried about trying to keep control of the information that was being let out about the things he had done. He didn't want his name associated with these crimes. Uh, he wanted his name kept out of the media so that his daughter wouldn't have to read about the things he had done you know, on, on Google or something online. So that was a big concern of his um, during the course of, of his talks with law enforcement, too. He created conditions, really manipulative and, and quite intelligent guy, at least it seemed in these negotiations, that he wanted conditions before divulging information to these officers. He had struck up a relationship with a, a Detective Monique Dahl, and he only wanted to speak to her, and it was few people that he wanted to speak to, but those people, he developed a relationship. He was very, as you write, he was very calm. He was laughing. He was very, thought it was enjoyable when he relived some of the things. But he wanted conditions on divulging based on that he wanted to be executed, and he wanted assurances of that execution. And as you talk, he didn't want uh, to go be tried in different states. He wanted federal charges. So he was informed of what the laws were. He knew a fair amount. Tell us, as you do, about how he had set this up so that he had some semblance of control. He had control of the situation, at least in his mind. Yeah, there were really there were two main points of agenda that he had, two main things he really wanted. One was what I mentioned about the you know, protecting his daughter and family as much as possible. But the other one is this wanting to get the death penalty. And it's not just that he wanted the death penalty, but he wanted it quickly. He wanted it to be imposed as fast as possible. He wanted to, he wanted to do whatever was possible to speed up the process because, you know, the death penalty isn't something that's done very rapidly. It takes a long time to go through that process and um, ultimately to even get to the point where the person who receives it actually is, is executed. It can take, you know, decades in some cases. So he wanted to speed all that up. He wanted to get the death penalty quickly. He wanted to be executed quickly. And he explained it in terms of he was used to, you know, being able to go wherever he wanted to and traveling around. You know, he traveled all over the country for his killings. And he didn't want to be sitting around in some big kind of supermax federal prison, you know, staring at the walls. He he wanted to he wanted to go out when as 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 he phrased it, when he still had his sanity, you know, while he still had good memories and things. He didn't want to kind of be dying inside while he was stuck in a cell. So he really pushed this this death penalty. So, you know, he used, he used bargaining chips. He, you know, he kind of played games with the investigators and tried to manipulate them and tried to get what he wanted. And, you know, it all boils back to control. A lot of these serial killers want control. And, of course, he wanted to have control as well. Um, and uh, so he would, he would kind of tantalize the investigators from time to time, give them little hints of things he had done, give them little bits of information, um, to keep them working with him. Uh, and, you know, out of the course of that, he got talked into a few times actually revealing things. He did admit to killing Samantha Koenig and did, did ultimately tell the authorities where her body was, and they went and retrieved her 
her body parts. <clears throat> and um, he also ended up admitting ultimately to abducting and killing the couriers you know, back in Vermont, in Essex, Vermont, which was a which you know really was a huge break for the Essex police, you know, and George Murdy and the others working on it because you know they had there's no way in a million years they ever would have connected him to that case if he hadn't admitted to it. Um, so uh, so that was one of the bits of information he did provide. He gave a lot of specifics about that case and went into great detail about how he abducted them and what happened later that night, where he took them, what he did to them, and how he disposed of their bodies. It was a, It is a fascinating story where you talk about um, Israel telling the authorities, again, excitingly telling, recalling with no, absolutely not an ounce of remorse, that uh, they both tried to fight for their lives and escape, which didn't work, obviously, but they were, uh, the rain was struggling and almost got out of her zip ties, and he then subdued her. Bill, the same thing, and fought hard, and Israel went out of his went out of his ammo and shot him numerous times, emptied his gun in Bill. So uh, it, it's interesting to hear those kinds of details. It's rare that you get those kinds of details via any method in a murder. So it's very it was at least I don't know some semblance of good that people had those details at least to know what happened in the last hours of the courier's life. Yeah, the the shooting of Bill was really, you know, he's, you know, he he said that that was the only time he had ever used the gun, he'd ever had to shoot shoot somebody and and the reason why was Bill was not doing things like he wanted to according to this plan that Keith had for what he was going to do with Bill in the rain that night. Bill wasn't following the script, so to speak, that Keyes had thought out ahead of time. And so that just infuriated him because, you know, he wanted to have this control over the situation about what he would do and when he would do it. And so Bill's resistance to that um, really screwed it up. And so Keyes became furious and ended up getting the gun and shooting him. You know, he had tied Bill up had him downstairs in the basement of, of a, an abandoned house that he took the two of them to. He had Lorraine upstairs in the second floor in a bedroom um, where he sexually assaulted her. But uh, while he was doing that, Bill got free in the basement. He'd been tied up to a chair down there and got out of the the ties and uh, was down there, you know, causing a commotion trying to get away. And so... Uh, Israel Keys went down there and confronted him and ended up emptying the the gun into Bill to kill him. Out of rage, basically. Part of this, too, that what Israel wanted and he tried to control, and he did control to a great degree the negotiations with these officers to get what he wanted, was also that he wanted and, and... I thought it was uh, incredible that they actually complied with this, is that they kept his name out of the media. They made an announcement that there was charges, but they didn't mention any name, which is what he wanted and what happened despite what he wanted. 
Yeah, as as you mentioned, you know, this was one of those key conditions that keeping his name out of the out of the media. And when he admitted to the killing the the couriers, that was one of the big conditions he had on that um, that that it not be revealed that he was the one who did it. And you know, law enforcement agreed to do that, and their rationale for doing that was to keep him talking, to keep him revealing information about other crimes he had committed, about other victims, so that they could try to bring some sort of closure to the families of his other victims. So they agreed to do this. They kept his name out for quite a long time and um, kept him talking. And, of course, it was it was hard for the folks back in Vermont to do that because, you know, they wanted to be able to give the ultimate closure to Bill and Lorraine's family and let them know who it was who had done it. Um, but But they had their hands kind of tied behind their back due to the agreements that had been made with him um, on the federal level. So they went, they went along with it. Um, the family, the courier family was, was told kind of what was happening and they agreed to it as well because they wanted to try to help out other victims, the, fa- the families of other victims as well to try to try to get their loved ones identified. So, um, so the, his name was kept out of the media for months and months, as the uh, <clears throat> as the FBI kept interviewing him, trying to get work with him to get more information. Now, what ended the this relationship that was developing, and they were they were getting he was alluding to other crimes, he was promising he was going to reveal about other things if he just got his uh, his conditions met. And what happened with this promise? Like I say, what happened despite the promise by police, by everybody's efforts, what happened? Well, somehow his, his name was, was learned, and it was, uh, it was run, and some news media ran the, the story that his name, that he was the one that, had uh, had abducted them, but you know, of course, they 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 didn't would not acknowledge or confirm that. Um, but his name was out there, and when he saw that, he was uh, he was furious about it, and it really caused him to clam up quite a bit for a while. He wouldn't talk to the the FBI or the prosecutors for quite a while after that, and they kind of had to get his trust back after that for for a while. They had to work at it. Now, everybody's readying, they're, they're working towards this deal despite this setback, um, and he's imprisoned. Uh, is there any, you, well, I guess I'm giving it away, but he's on a suicide watch, and obviously nothing happens while he's on that suicide watch, but what happens before this trial to change this entire story? Well, even though he was on suicide watch and got off of it and was deemed no longer a risk to kill himself and was actually in a segregated unit, you know, in a in a isolated unit there at the Anchorage Correctional Complex where he was supposed to be, you know, closely monitored and very restricted with what sort of things he had access to. He was ultimately able to kill himself while he was in prison there. Um, he ended up somehow getting a razor 
and uh, used that to slit his wrist and um, also ended up setting up a a way that he would end up strangling himself as well. So he wanted to be, you know, like everything else, he planned these things well ahead of time and planned out to make sure that when he tried to kill himself, he actually succeeded in doing it. So he had not just one way of doing it, but two ways of doing it. So um, he, he did end up killing himself. And it was a, a huge blow to the investigators because they really thought they had this connection with him. They really were hoping to still get a lot of information from him about other victims because he had dropped tidbits of information about quite a few murders that he had committed um, without giving specifics or identifying the actual victims and things. So they were really hoping to get more information from him uh, for this, but he ended up taking all that information with him. And, you know, that, again, that, that goes back to this control issue. It's it's control he had. He had the, the ability to keep that information for himself and that's ultimately what he did he even mentioned that at one point that you know it's the the victims names and identities belong to him unless he decided to reveal them very profound scene in in the book is that tammy says that she talked to him a day or two before he seemed to be upbeat she had maybe thought that he may commit suicide, but at least she didn't hear that in that conversation. And she said to him, don't kill yourself. You can raise our daughter from prison. Um, obviously, they were still in contact. Very amazing that this woman would still be in contact at the same time, but... What do you think, uh, in terms of, well, not what do you think, he alluded to with those investigators, though, uh, without giving, again, every detail that they obviously wanted, but there was a, a total that he had alluded to, and then investigators had thought had revised that number. So what was the number that he had alluded to, at least it seemed that he had given uh, enough information to more than strongly suggest a number. What were those numbers? Yeah, so he gave, he, he did give that information. He gave specifics in a couple of them. He gave specific detailed information in the Samantha Koenig case. He gave specific detailed information in the Courier case. Um, so that was three murders between those. But then he also gave bits of information, um, enough to convince the interviewer, there's interviewers that, these are things he'd actually done. So he ultimately admitted to um, about seven or eight murders. And um, the the FBI believed, based on other things he had said and alluded to, believed that he had killed at least 11 people is ultimately what they decided. But unfortunately, Were they, able they weren't able to identify those other specific victims. He didn't give them enough information to do that. And, you know, so by killing himself, he was able to keep these cases unsolved. You know, it's unfortunate for the, the families of these victims, but that's something he, he chose that he, he wanted to do. He wanted to keep that to himself. And the investigators had even appeal, tried to appeal to his, you know, kind of better nature about giving some sort of closure to the victims' families. You know, they, they they appealed to him about that, you know, 
these families deserve to have some kind of closure and be able to put this behind them. But so he thought about that, and then he came back the next day basically and said, you know, I've, I've thought about this issue about closure, but um, he said, uh, you know, if, if someone I loved was missing, you know, would I rather think that maybe that they're somewhere on a on a beach or something, or would I rather know that they were horribly raped and murdered or something like that so he he decided that you know this this issue of closure was not going to get him to to reveal any of the other specifics about these other victims there was a suicide note soaked in blood again they had to look at that for any kind of promising lead in terms of evidence of something he might have said deathbed confession um so they went through. So the FBI grabs it. Tell us what the FBI did and how they managed to get information from that note, and what did this note contain? Yeah, the note was was uh, multiple pages, handwritten on you know kind of legal size type paper, and as you said, it was saturated in blood. It couldn't be read when they first found it. It was so so saturated, so soaked. But they were able to send it back to their analysts, and they were able to ultimately to to decipher what was written there. And it's a, it's a really interesting suicide note in terms of the things that, that he wrote there. They ultimately determined that there wasn't anything in the note that would help them find other victims or anything of that sort. Um, but it is a very interesting note to read nonetheless, and, um, you know, that the text of it is, is included in the book um, as well. He had tried to help the police with uh, Google Maps and uh, and talk of his kill kits, and we alluded to that. And again, we've heard of kill kits. People that are fans of true crime know about kill kits. But what was the unique aspect of this guy and his kill kits? Well, the really the really interesting thing about him, one of the other interesting things about him, uh, and as you said, is probably unique, is that. He had these kill kits, and what he would do is he would he would have a you know one of these plastic buckets that you can get at Lowe's or Home Depot, and he would put items in there that he planned on using and committing his crimes. You know, be it cable ties or guns or duct tape, whatever else it happened to be. He would put that in there. He would seal it up, and he would he would then bury this bucket uh, in the ground at a location that, that he determined that he would come back to in the future. Um, so he buried these all over the country. Um, a couple of them were recovered because he gave specific information about where to find them, and a bunch of them weren't. So they're, you know, they're still out there somewhere. But you know, a specific example of one is he had buried one of these kill kits in Essex, in Essex Vermont, in um, April of 2009 when he was in the area there. And then he came back over two years later in June of 2011 and dug up the kill kit and then ultimately used the things in it to abduct the courier. So this is something he planned out well over two years in advance, the commission of this crime. He buried this kill kit, came back, dug it up, and then used it in the future for this crime. What about uh, James Koning? This guy's a 
kind of a tough guy, or at least has a tough image a little bit. Uh, and he went this extraordinary effort to, to put out the word with the flyers and the, uh, the rewards and everything that he tried to do to get his daughter back. The You, you capture the it's almost pathetic, the, the plea with the would-be ransom or the would-be kidnapper. Meanwhile, his daughter was already dead. Um, what is his reaction to the authorities letting this guy that had stole the key and was uh, placed in segregation and tried to escape one time and acted up at court, breaking a, a leg shackle? What was his reaction to this guy being able to escape justice? He felt cheated. He felt that Keys had had cheated him, had cheated his daughter, Samantha, of their ability to receive justice, to see, to have Keys put on trial and to to get some sort of closure in that respect and to see him prosecuted. And so James felt very, very cheated. He was outraged. Uh, he really couldn't understand how Keyes was able to get this razor that he used to kill himself. So he was he was outraged. He was angry. He was mad. Um, he felt he felt cheated. He felt as if you know Keyes had committed another crime. Basically, it robbed him of the opportunity and his daughter of the opportunity for justice. Now we talked. To, I mentioned uh, his Keyes' girlfriend Tammy, and they had the daughter. Tammy had gone through Key's journals, and she was privy to his past. And so you talk about in the book, and again with your incredible access, not that anything can can explain this kind of behavior and this kind of need to kill or want to kill, but tell us what you found anyway in terms of the background of this guy, his religious family. Um, Tell us about... Not that it can explain anything, but tell us about his curious and interesting background that you talk about in the book. Well, he came from a very large family. Uh, He had nine siblings. He was the oldest son. And he was homeschooled for most of his life. And his parents were very strict, especially his mother. They were religious, uh, a very strict sort of religious environment in the home there and um keys came to resent this you know this imposition of this religion on him and that became a a big part of his personality that he developed and um you know as he as he went through his adolescence and as he got into his teenage years he he began to see that he was different than most people, that he he was um he didn't see things the way other people did. And, you know, there's one story in particular he related to the investigators and it's it's in the book as well, as how when he was fourteen was really the the kind of the moment that he really knew that there was something different about him, that he wasn't like other people. And it was a story about um, you know, animal torture. Again, this is one of the things we hear about a lot, right, with uh, serial killers is that, you know, if they're torturing animals when they're kids, then that's a big, should raise a big red flag. So sure enough, he has a story about um, torturing a cat. And, 
you know, seeing the reaction of the people he was with when it happened, you know, most of them are kind of freaking out or getting physically ill even from it. Um, they're so traumatized by the experience, whereas he thought the whole thing was funny, you know, and, and that's when he realized that he was way different than a lot of other people. And he also realized at that time that because he was way different than other people, almost like the story in Dexter, that, that he should remain, again, a solo act, not try to tell people or not divulge this stuff to anyone. So the next time he, the first time he ever talks about this to anyone is not his wife, it's not his girlfriends, it's not in a drunken slip-up to friends. And that's what he talks about when he when he first gets arrested, that people won't believe that this is me. They're going to be quite shocked. So he really dedicated his life to being very, very meticulous and careful in, and, and methodical, as you described, most methodical serial killer ever, really, in that he was very, very careful, methodic, and traveled, and did, like we alluded to in the beginning, studied other serial killers, and it seemed to be that he understood other people's mistakes and didn't want to make them. Yeah, and this this ability to maintain these dual lives, to to have this this life, this this quote normal life, where he was living with his his girlfriend Tammy Hopkins, who they actually ended up getting engaged, uh, and that, that's all discussed in the book as well. So he he had this life, this normalcy life, where he lived with her, where he had a daughter, where he had a you know a job, where he was well liked in the community. All these sorts of things seem, you know, like the kind of a normal person. Um, he had that life, but then he had this this dark side where he was, you know, brutally murdering people, and he really enjoyed that. He enjoyed the the knowledge that he was able to fool all these people. Um, he he talked about that how you know he would be out with with some friends, you know, having a beer or whatever, or at a party or something, and. You know, it would it would enter his mind while that was going on that you know none of these people really know know me. You know, I'm fooling all these people. You know, I've been able to to maintain this 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 dual life without anybody knowing, and that really that really excited him that he was able to do that. He really took a lot of satisfaction from the fact that he was able to do that, and he did it so well. He was able to fool this woman that he lived with for you know for for years. She had no idea that he was doing these things, committing these terrible acts. And um, and he fooled a lot of people that way. Didn't he also say that, uh, that part of this was that he was an inconsequential, a son of a person not to be noticed? Wasn't Didn't he make that profound statement as well? Well, he did say that if after he was arrested and everything and during one of the interviews, he did mention that when investigators went back, as he knew they would, and you know went back and looked into his background and his past and started talking to people who knew him and all this sort of thing, that there wouldn't be a lot there uh, you know, for much of his life, that he was really kind of off the off the grid so to speak for for much of his life so he 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 did comment about that yeah at one point that there wouldn't be a whole lot there that they would be able to find out and that they wouldn't be able to learn anything about his other victims unless he 
chose to reveal information about them. He was so meticulous and so careful to, to make sure he covered his tracks. What I thought was interesting, too, and quite unique is I've heard people or read about people inappropriately laughing or, again, almost jovial in the recounting of murders. But this guy laughed a lot and smiled a lot and winked a lot, didn't he? Yeah, he really enjoyed talking about it. You know, he he felt a lot of satisfaction uh, in doing these things and, you know, exhibited the 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 classic traits of not feeling any kind of remorse for these brutal acts that he had committed. You know, he he enjoyed doing them. He enjoyed telling them about them. And it was interesting too. He actually revealed his his motivations for the killings too. He was asked about, you know, well, why why are you why did you do these things? I mean, why do you why do you why did you keep killing these people and doing these these terrible things and um, he said uh, he, he said it was a combination of things. Really, he said um, he said it's not just about the sexual fantasy, you know, this kind of rape fantasy, this having this power over and over human beings sort of thing. He said it's not just about the sexual fantasy, and it's definitely not about the money. You know, he got the money he got the money from ransoms or from robbing banks that he did and these sorts of things. And he said it's not just about the adrenaline. Um, you know, obviously he he got this these adrenaline surges doing these things. Um, you know, kind of like a drug. You know, there's an addiction there with that. So he said it's not just this, it's not just that, it's not just that. He said it, it's all those things together. He said it's the it's the sexual fantasy component, it's the money, it's the adrenaline, the high he gets from doing it. It's all those things together is what kept him doing it. And he said he said once he started, he said there was nothing else like it. So that's why he kept doing it. Uh, one last thing, he there is a again a profound short discussion on whether he was born a detective thought maybe he was not born a monster, but he was created. And what did Israel Keys? How did he respond to that? Yeah, early on in the interview process. Um, I think it was Detective Dahl from the Anchorage Police Department had mentioned that that, that she didn't um she thought that they were they were monsters were were created somehow. And um so he he uh he, he wanted to to give her an answer to that and his response was you know, something along the lines of, you know, that's that's just that's who I am, that's how I've always been and that's how I always will be. Basically, you talk about, too, the, it's very, very odd, again, the response from um, the Keys family. I mean, only you talk about just a handful of people attending the funeral and then their, their response. So before we wrap it up, what, you, you write about it, what, what was their response to this whole thing, to their family member? Yeah, there weren't a lot of people that attended his funeral. Um, barely any of his family attended. And, you know, his, as I mentioned earlier on, his, his, his mother was had these very strict um, religious views and, you know, not even not even really kind of your, your normal sort of 
religious beliefs and viewpoints. And she was uh, very, very much of the belief that keys that her son was, you know, would would essentially be burning in hell for all eternity for what he had done. And so she um, she didn't have the sort of emotional parental reaction that you might expect that a mother might have, you know, in a lot of these cases where these where people do terrible things, the you know, the the mother in particular, you, you hear them still saying, I still love my child, even though they did these things. But you didn't get that from her, you know, she was more of you know, he he was a bad person, he was a sinner and now he's paying for what he did, you know, his soul is gonna be eternally tormented. Yeah. Yes, very interesting case. I want to thank you very much, JT, for coming on and talking about Devil in the Darkness, the true story of serial killer Israel Keys. For those that might want to find out more about your work, do Facebook, do you have a website? Tell us about that. Yeah, I am on Facebook. Uh, you can just Google JT Hunter, but uh, the easiest way to do it is is through Amazon.com. Um, if you go on there and you, know, you could type in the book title, Devil in the Darkness, it'll pop up, or you can just type in JT Hunter. And it'll take you to uh, my author page, and it has uh, Devil in the Darkness on there, as well as the, the other books I've written as well, you know, including The Vampire Next Door, which was my first one from a few years back. Absolutely. Yeah, that was fascinating. Well, I want to thank you very much, JT. I uh, hope to speak to you again soon. I know you're a prolific writer, so we will be talking to you again in the near future. But thank you very much for this, and you have a great evening. Good night. All right, Dan. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.